Good morning. My name is Dion, and uh, I get to be the pastor who leads you through a message today. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Uh, just as I get started today, I've, I had a few just random observations um, as, uh, as I was thinking this morning. Uh, the first was that um, you must have done something really bad this week in order to feel like you had to come to church on a day like today. Uh, it's cold outside, but I'm really glad that you're here. So uh, thanks for braving the, we- braving the weather, and thanks for uh, coming to be present. Um, I was also just noticing just, man, how much I love this guy's voice, Tim Halper, an awesome voice, awesome heart, yeah? Uh, I was also sitting there thinking as I was listening to Tim sing, especially Mary, did you know, just kind of listening to that song. I was thinking, we have some of our core students over here, they're, they're usually over meeting in Cornerstone right now, but um, they're on break, and so they're here joining us. And you guys have some awesome voices. I love hearing you sing this morning, so thanks for singing out, and uh, you guys sound amazing. Um, I was also noticing that this is the fattest Christmas tree I've ever seen in my life. And uh, I've, I've just, my spatial side of my brain has been wondering how on earth they got it in here. I know they did, but um, it didn't grow here that way. So somehow they got it through the doors. Um, but that's just pretty incredible. I, I'm also just kind of blown away that as we sit here today, in two weeks from today, we'll be at a new year. And I just can't believe, I know this, like, my kids are sitting up there and they're like, Dad, that's because you're old now. And I just can't believe that this year has gone by so fast. And in fact, as I was thinking about the end of 2016, um, and I know we're not there yet, but here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to think through the year, the year that you had, the highs, the lows, the ups, the downs. Uh, maybe it's, it's really personal. Maybe you just think like corporately what we've been through together as a community or as, as a world. And I'd like you to identify a word that you would pick to describe to define what 2016 was like for you. So choose one word. If you had to sum it up in a word, what would that word be? Okay, again, personally or uh, more corporately. And then if that's kind of a PG-rated word, uh, go ahead and turn to a neighbor nearby. If you're at home, do this too. Uh, turn to a neighbor nearby and tell them share, them, with, share with them that word that sums up 2016 for you. Go ahead. I love it. There are always a few of you who are like, I will never talk in church, no matter how long you wait. Uh, so you're waiting me out. Um, may, maybe the word that you chose and the word that you just said would, um, would be something like joy or blessing or happiness. Uh, I have some friends who have welcomed babies into their houses this year, and I know it was a really joyous thing. I know other friends who have moved into new homes, have had a breakthrough in life, had had something just go really well. So maybe that just defines your year. It's been a, it's been a great year for you. For some of you, maybe the word was something more like tragedy or heartbreak or difficulty. Because I know some friends who have lost loved ones in tragic ways. Uh, I know other people who've just had a a year of intense struggle. It's It's been a difficult year for you. Maybe if you're someone who follows a lot of the news or a lot of the political landscape in our, in our country and in our world, maybe the word you chose is something like turmoil or controversy or division. There's been plenty of that in 2016. Uh, maybe if you follow football, if you follow the Rams, your word would be suckers. <laughs> I tried to warn you, LA. We tried to tell you, but you just wouldn't listen. And, um, you know, you were crying at one point, now you're laughing, and that's all good. Uh, you know, what word I would suggest as I think about 2016, I have a word, and the word I would suggest is the word apathy. 
And maybe this is personal, but I also think this is corporate as I think about us as a word, that uh, 2016 has been a year of apathy. Let me explain what I mean. I know it's kind of harsh, but let me explain. Uh, in February of 2016, this guy's name was uh, Marcus Gaines. He's a bartender in Chicago, early 30s. And uh, one night after work, he um, went to a 7-Eleven in the city of Chicago. And uh, he bought some stuff. Surveillance footage shows him walking out of the door, and he's met by a man, um, and they kind of get in this altercation. And you can see he's trying to be peaceable about it, and he's trying to re- calm the guy down. And, and then eventually he moves away just to try, to try to move away from the altercation. And as he moves away, the other man punches him uh, in the back of the head, and uh, Marcus Gaines is knocked out. He, lies, he just falls unconscious, and he ends up lying in the street there in a busy Chicago street. Um, and surveillance footage shows this. There's kind of another picture here of, of there's a whole video that shows the surveillance footage. Uh, so there he is. He's kind of lying here in the corner here on this, in the street. And immediately as he falls, two guys run over. And they pick his pockets. They take stuff and they, you see them running off. And then there are all these other people on the street who watch this happen. And then later, you know, watch this man lying in the street. And they do nothing. And the surveillance footage shows that this just kind of goes on for a couple of minutes and people are just kind of milling about and they're looking and, and, and no one's doing anything. And then finally, tragically, again, I'm not showing you the video, but, but a cab comes around the corner, doesn't see him, runs him over, and he dies that night from injuries sustained, not from getting punched, but injuries sustained from um, being run over by a taxi cab. Just a, just a horribly tragic story. Um, and this happened back in February, but in April the, the video was released. And this is what his aunt, the woman who raised him, his aunt, said about this, I mean, just heartbroken when she watched the video. She said, I've never heard of anything like this where people just walk by a person lying in the street and nobody helps. I just don't understand it. And I would have to agree with her. I just don't understand it. And yet there are probably moments in my life where I saw someone in need and I walked by them and didn't do anything. Uh, this wouldn't be the only example in 2016. There have been numerous others, I won't go into detail, of, of people who've been assaulted and, and there are people standing by not doing anything to help them, but worse than not doing anything to help them, some of them even pulled out their phones and went live on Facebook or uh, Periscope or any of those other things and, 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 and to laughter and likes, they recorded someone else's misfortune and you think, what? What on earth? There's actually a documented phenomenon called the bystander effect where, where things happen in plain sight and you would think that with people all around someone would help you, but, but the sociology, the psychology actually works in the opposite. People often just walk by, they ignore it. You know, 2016 was a year of great world conflict. It marks a five-year um, anniversary, I guess you could say, of the conflict in Syria. And specifically in 2016, there's been a lot of talk about the city of Aleppo. Here it was on the left, uh, this, this ancient city, um, you know, thriving city, and here's what it looks like on the right. And I think over the year, a lot of us have heard about Aleppo. We kind of know the word, but we don't really know much about it. And even more than that, I think there are even fewer of us who not only know about it, but there are fewer of us who have actually done anything about it. And you wonder, with unprecedented human suffering going on in the world, why do we just stand there? Uh, Helen Keller is one who said something about apathy. Here's what she said. Um, She said, science may have found a cure for most evils, but it has found no remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings. You know, apathy, just, just not caring, not doing anything, not being moved when you see great needs 
around you. Uh, psychologist Rollo May said this, hate is not the opposite of love. We usually think that, right? But he said, hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is worse than not hating someone is just not caring at all. But I want to set the record straight about apathy this morning, that I don't believe that apathy is the sin only of the calloused or the uncaring or the selfish or the evil. I think apathy just as often is the sin of the overwhelmed, of the people who have tried really hard to make a change in the world, to do something positive in the world, and, and they've, they've broken themselves up against the impossibility of it. They've seen nothing change or nothing move. I think often apathy is the sin of those who have waited too long, who have hoped too long for something to happen and nothing's happened, nothing has changed. I think apathy is a sin of people who've just given into the belief that things can't change, that things can't be different, that things can't be better, so why bother? So just be clear about this. I, I know this is kind of a heavy message the week before Christmas, but I don't think apathy is just the sin of the callous, the uncaring, of the heartless, of the selfish. I think it's also the sin of the worn out, of the helpless, and the defeated. And so it's no wonder to me that we can look around our world today because I think there are a lot of worn out, helpless, and defeated people. It's no wonder today that uh, we can look around the world and see so much apathy. See, the scandal that we're going to talk about this week in the series Scandals of Grace is, uh, is all about... Um, not a person, um, but it's about a town, the little town of Bethlehem, a town that was promised greatness but fell into great apathy. Now, if you know the history of Bethlehem, Bethlehem was pretty much nothing. It was a, a nowhere place. It was known, but nothing significant happened there. It was, a, it was a shepherding village, and it was kind of outside of anything that was important. Um, but the thing that brought Bethlehem onto the world's radar was it was the hometown of David, the man who would become the greatest king in all of, all of Israel's history. And if you don't know about King David, King David was the guy who stood up to this giant Goliath when no one else in Israel would do so. David stood up to him and defeated him. And David was the guy who endured under the persecutions of King Saul, the Saul who came, the king rather, who came before him, King Saul. Um, he stood up under the persecutions of Saul and he didn't retaliate and he lived faithfully even though Saul was trying to kill him and he didn't, he didn't respond with violence towards Saul. And uh, eventually David became the king once Saul self-destructed. And David was the guy who time and again dealt with Israel's enemies and so he brought a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity and faithfulness back to Israel. So David was the greatest king that Israel had ever known and uh, still goes down in history as, as uh, one of the greatest, I should say. And David came from Bethlehem. See, before David, Bethlehem wasn't much of anything, much like Illinois before Lincoln. Some would argue that that's still the case, but I, I won't chime in on that. And so David was Bethlehem's sole claim to fame. It was a pretty good one. They were proud of their son, of their hometown boy. And, and, and that, that pride lasted for a few hundred years. And, and you, know, that you would just think that would be enough to be the hometown of King David. But 300 years after David, so David's about, you know, 1,000 B.C., if you kind of want a rough timeline. Uh, 300 years later, in 700 B.C., there was a prophet by the name of Micah. And he uttered an oracle. Um, uh, he had a vision that he declared about 
Bethlehem. And, and he decreed that Bethlehem was not a has-been town that can only look back to David, but he actually decreed that something was going to happen in Bethlehem that would, that would put the greatness of David, it would, just, it would make it seem small by comparison. I want you to look at what Micah says in chapter 5, verse 2. He says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Now, this is 300 years after David. So they've already seen a ruler come out of Bethlehem. I mean, it's so unlikely that a king, the caliber of David, would come out of Bethlehem. And yet here, 300 years later, Micah's saying, no, 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 this is going to happen again. There's going to be a ruler out of you who will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Micah promised, I mean, it's kind of strange, that there was going to be this, this one whose origins were from of old, from ancient times, who would come out of Bethlehem, again, that, a, that Bethlehem wasn't a has-been washed-up place, but that they had a future, and that a future ruler, another David, another king, even greater than David, would come out of Bethlehem. So you've got King David, 1000 BC, 700 BC, you've got Micah. Fast forward 700 years to about 6 or 4 BC, right right around the time, right, the time right before Jesus was born. 700 years have gone by since that prophecy was uttered. And in 700 years, things did not get better for Israel. Things did not get better for Bethlehem. In fact, they got worse. Uh, in Micah's day, the big enemies were people like Babylon or the Assyrians. Um, in, in, uh, in 4 or 6 B.C., the big enemy of the day was Rome, and Rome was the most powerful enemy that Israel had ever faced. They were living under occupation, under the domination of Rome. They could not rebel or throw them off if they tried. The most fierce enemy they had ever, ever seen was Rome. And they were living in a time of all kinds of political and religious upheaval. There were these, these, these different like political religious parties that had come to being, uh, come into being the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they're, they're fighting it out and everything's all ugly and political and so religion has been tainted and they're puppet kings and puppet uh, high priests and, and all this stuff is just, just really ugly. And, and in the meantime, Bethlehem is right outside of the epicenter of all this because it's about five miles outside of Jerusalem. So all of the friction that's going on in Jerusalem, you can feel it five miles away in Bethlehem. You can feel the heat there. So 700 years go by, waiting for something to get better, waiting for this ruler that was promised in Micah, and things only get worse. And so I think for me it's kind of understandable that the people of Bethlehem may have given up. They may have stopped caring. They may have become apathetic, but let's look at it here today. Uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. These are words that we usually look at about a week from now, uh, but we're looking at them in advance for a reason. So Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, Caesar Augustus was, you know, the most, the most brutal, just heavy-handed leader that they had ever seen. And uh, so he issued this decree that would be taken, sorry, a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman Empire. I'll talk more about that in a minute. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. It gives you some historical context there because you all know Quirinius, right? No, I don't either. It's fine. Um, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee 
to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So, so Rome says, you've got to go to your hometown to be registered. And this registration is really about one thing above everything else. It's about being taxed. So again, more, more oppression, more being bossed around by the big bullies, Rome, just, just more of the same. So now Joseph has to go all the way down to his hometown so that he can be registered, a ho- horribly inconvenient thing, but ultimately it's so that they can tax him appropriately later on in life. So he's got to travel there, but taking with him, uh, of course, he's taking with him his, uh, his future wife, his, his wife, Mary. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So uh, they have to make this journey. I have a map here of even modern day, the modern day region, modern day Israel. So Syria is kind of right up here. You see Nazareth way in the north. You see Bethlehem way in the south. Here's Jerusalem. Just a short jaunt outside of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. And uh, they would have to make this trek somewhere between 80 and 100 miles, depending on the route that they took from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem because Rome told them they had to so that they could tax them. And so Joseph has no choice other than to go and they make this pilgrimage, and it's a pretty extreme pilgrimage, but it's a pilgrimage that, that they would make several times over in their life because faithful Hebrew people would travel to Jerusalem at least once a year. And we know Mary and Joseph did that later on in life. They traveled to Jerusalem once a year to make sacrifices for the Passover. So uh, it's not an impossible journey, but it's a tough journey, especially when it's not for your faith. It's because the government's telling you you have to do that. And so they travel all the way, 100 miles from home. And while they're there, I think you know the rest of the story. Here's how it goes. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So you're picturing this, this this couple who is 100 miles away from home um, in in a city that's kind of home for them, but it's not their home right now. And uh, they're there because the government tells them they have to be there, and there's all of this stuff going on. And then this woman, she gives birth not just to her child, but, but to the king of kings, to the great Messiah. And she has to lay him in a manger, a place where they feed animals, because no one's willing to make room for them? Talk about apathy. Only, I'm not so sure that's how it actually went. See, this story, even though we know it really well, it gets clouded all the time for us by hundreds of years of tradition and lore and Christmas pageants, I want to set the record straight about this today. For starters, let's talk about the guest room that it refers to there, this, this guest room idea. Um, we often, when we hear the story, and even in some translations, it talks about there was no room for them in the inn. Except we're not talking about an inn here. There's actually a, a word for inn in Greek, and that's not the word that's used here. The word is, is guest room or even um, upper room. See, the idea that Mary and Joseph would have traveled all the way to Bethlehem and stayed in an inn, there just weren't inns like that. I mean, there were some, but not like we think of it today. And remember, these people were traveling to, to where their hometown was. And like it or not, when you travel home, who do you stay with? You stay with family, right? You stay with relatives. And so the reality is that Mary and Joseph are probably staying, not looking for a hotel, no. Uh, they're staying with their family, and uh, this word guest room, like I said, um, also can be translated upper room. We know it's translated there in other ways. Because um, here's what we know about a Palestinian house of this, of this time. That poor people living in Palestine, their house was basically one room. And in that one room you would cook and you would live and you would sleep. 
But above their house, there was kind of this bonus space that would be a guest chamber or a guest room or, again, an upper room, much like the room that Jesus ate his Passover in before he died. In a bigger house, it was a bigger upper room. So you'd have your main living space. You would have a room where you could put some guests who came by to stay with you that was upstairs. And then there'd be a third space in your house that was actually outside of your house but but might even be structurally attached to your house where you would keep your animals. Bethlehem was a shepherding town, and so... Uh, That's how you made your livelihood. You kept your animals close and you'd even bring them in sometimes if you needed to. So there was kind of this adjacent space where you'd keep your animals and there were mangers there and that's where you would feed them and that's where you'd take care of them. So this picture that we have of Mary and Joseph, you know, it's kind of my picture growing up that that they, they just arrive, you know, she's on this donkey and she's having contractions and they're like, they just get to town and they're like, quick, we gotta find some place. And they go and they check all the hotels and no one can help them find a spot. And eventually someone's like, oh, well, you can stay in my barn. And they take them to the barn or the cave and, and there they have a, have a baby. That's, that's probably flawed. The reality is, is that when Mary comes time to have a baby, she's probably been staying with relatives for some time. Because you don't just make a 100-mile trip and then turn around and go back home. So she's probably visiting family and been there for some time. But then she goes into labor while she's there. And, and this house is filled with other guests because everyone has to go to their hometown to be registered. And so the, the guest room upstairs is filled with people. There's not a lot of room in the house. And so in order to provide some privacy uh, for Mary and Joseph, either they, they, they have their baby in one of two places, outside in this kind of added-on space where the animals are because that would be a place where they could get some privacy, you know, maybe you can even think of in a modern house like your mud room, or maybe not. It's probably cruder than that, but you get the idea. Or they have the baby in the main space downstairs. Everyone just kind of stays out of their way. So here's the point. The injustice here, the scandal here of Bethlehem, it's not that Mary and Joseph were treated poorly by their relatives or by the town. That's not the case. It's shocking for sure that the king of all kings, that God would ordain that his son would be born in circumstances such like this, or such as this. But the idea that they were somehow mistreated, this distressed couple, no, the reality is the family probably did their very best to take care of them, that they were treated well, even though the circumstances weren't ideal. But friends, there is a scandal here, and it's a scandal that we often don't take note of, and I want you to see it today for what it is. See, I think the real scandal here the real injustice here is that the Messiah is born exactly in the place that was predicted to be born and no one really seems to notice. See, Bethlehem is the town where everybody should be sleeping with one eye open, waiting for something great to happen because Micah promised that it would. And so they should be waiting and watching all the time for this great king like David to be born in their midst. But what do we know? Later on, we know that the shepherds hear about it from an angel and they come and they visit and they celebrate and they go and tell people. But otherwise, the the town is unaware, seemingly unaware of what has just happened in their midst, that the king has been born, that the prophecy has been fulfilled, that there is hope again. And maybe that's because they didn't see a royal motorcade pull up in the streets and they knew there were no dignitaries present. So they couldn't imagine that a king could be born or maybe the reason that they missed it, they didn't notice it. Is because in 700 years of waiting, I mean, 700 years, that's a long time to wait. Maybe they had given up believing, expecting. They'd stopped trying. They'd stopped caring about what Micah said because they watched his life got harder and worse. And so they became apathetic. So get this. 
their apathy isn't about them missing an injustice, a need in front of them. Their apathy causes them to miss out on a blessing, on something beautiful and miraculous and wonderful, some great news that is unfolding in their midst. Their apathy causes them to miss it. I wonder how often we, in our apathy, I wonder how often we're missing things, and specifically, I wonder what we might be missing. See, we tend to just go through life with blinders on. When you think about the human suffering that's all around us, and in this you know, connected age where there's a 24-hour news cycle, we can, we can turn on the news, we can go to you know, Twitter, we can get on a news website, and, and we can see suffering all the time. And we rightfully become overwhelmed by that. And so what happens is, is we often put on these blinders and we go through life and we're just like, you know what, I, 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 just, I just can't see that stuff anymore. I, I don't know what to do about it. It seems like no matter how hard I try, nothing changes, nothing's gonna change, the needs are too great, I'm too small. We, we just kind of live with blinders on, don't we? And so the result is we miss people like Marcus Gaines. We, we miss people who are in need. We miss opportunities to serve and help people while we're out shopping for one more present for that person who already has way more than they can ever use. You know this, right? That that money could be given to help someone who's homeless or hungry or in need of medicine, and that could change their life, that could save their life. And we know that. We know that we're so overwhelmed by, like, where do you start? That we just choose to shut it all out. See, I wonder what we might be missing in our apathy but it's not just the needs. Just like with Bethlehem, I also wonder what good, what beautiful, what spectacular, what even miraculous things God might be doing all around us, even now, that we're also missing. Because in our apathy, we live with blinders on and we've just quit caring. I mean, everything from apathy about the world around us it's easy to get jaded and cynical and just to stop caring about the world around us, to, to imagine that it's just getting darker and people are getting ruder and nothing good happens. In fact, I have a friend the other day who was telling me that he was in a drive-thru someplace and, uh, and, he, and, he's, and he's waiting forever in this drive-thru because this woman ahead of him is just standing or sitting there you know, at the drive-thru talking forever to the person at the window. And he's like, you know, I, you're just not even thinking about the rest of the people. Why don't you be quiet? Move on with your day. Let's just keep moving, right? I mean, you've been there. And you're thinking the worst possible thoughts about the person's motive ahead of you. They're just not caring. They're not thinking. This is what's wrong with the world today. And then he pulls up to the window and he discovers why it took so long. She was paying for his order and the order of the person behind him. Dang it, right? How easy is it just, just to live that way? Just ignoring the possibilities of the goodness of people. How God might be moving in someone to do something kind, to do something good. Man, talk about apathy. I think about relationships. Because relationships are hard. They take a lot out of you, don't they? And trying to love someone and trying to be loyal to someone, trying to be a good friend to someone, it is exhausting. And it often doesn't seem like it, it pays. And so it's so easy to get apathetic in your relationships. And I wonder how often in our apathy, we miss what God is doing in the life of someone that we love whether it's a friend, whether it's our partner. You know, it could be that today God is, God is doing a work of life change in that person 
that you love, that person that you're frustrated with, that person that you're connected with, and, and it's something real and authentic and it's beautiful, but you can't see it because you've quit caring. You just don't even care anymore because it hurts too much. It's too painful. It's too difficult to go on caring. And the result is you are missing what God is doing in them. Or think about apathy that we might feel about the promises of God in Scripture. I mean, Bethlehem, 700 years, you know, this promise hung out there. And after a while, you just kind of have to stop believing it or just go, you know what, Micah, I don't care. I'm just going to go on with my life. And I wonder how many of us feel the same. When God promises to, to provide for us, when we step out in generosity, I wonder how many of us are just like, you know what, I'm struggling. I just, I don't care if it's true or not. I'm just not going there. Or whether it's a promise that, that God will never leave us or he'll never forsake us or that he'll always forgive us no matter how far we fall or, or that he'll reveal himself to us if we wait on him, if we seek him, that we'll find him when we seek him with our whole heart. I mean, there's so many promises of scripture that, that sometimes we just, we just kind of, you know, like, like I, it's not even a matter of if I believe it or not. I just don't care anymore, God. And I wonder in our apathy how often we miss the provision, the miraculous work, the, the beauty of God showing up and doing something in our lives because we just don't care anymore. So I think what we can learn about the scandal in Bethlehem is that apathy is dangerous, not just because it causes you to miss the needs of people around you, and I think it's a real risk, but it also keeps you from seeing, it keeps you from noticing the miraculous, the good, the loving, the powerful work of God that's happening, the promises of God that are being fulfilled all around us. And so here's what I hope, that when you think of Bethlehem, when you look at that nativity scene, which maybe is you know, historically questionable now, um, but that's okay. Uh, when, you, when you hear the Christmas story this week, when you, when you think about Bethlehem, and when you think about Jesus, the king of all, laying in a manger, you know, this, this crude place being poked by straw in the back. I hope that you don't get upset about that. I hope you don't get up in arms about how they treated him. I think they tried to treat him as, as, as good as they could. And in fact, here's what I can assure you of, that Jesus didn't mind his arrival. He wasn't bothered by it. He didn't get hung up about stuff like that. Because years later, when they would put a heavy cross on him and demand that he carry it through the streets, he didn't cry out or protest. Because the word says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this is just who Jesus is. He, he, he doesn't get upset about that. He doesn't get upset that people don't notice him or care about him or celebrate him in the way. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't get bothered by that. See, I hope what you see when you look at Bethlehem, though, is the danger, the, the tragedy of a town who missed the greatest thing that would ever happen within their gates because they'd given up hope because they'd quit caring. And I hope that challenges you that, man, may that never be so with us. No matter what happens in life, no matter how long we have to wait, no matter how difficult circumstances seem, no matter how pointless it all feels like it might be sometimes, my prayer for you is that when you think of Bethlehem, it will remind you to be watchful always, to be hopeful always because our father is always at work and so I want to challenge you today to, to take the blinders off 
and to open up your eyes to the world around you to, to see the needs, to see the hurts, to see the cries going up around you and you can't fix them all. You're right. But you can meet some of those needs and it's powerful when you do. And maybe that's something your family can even do this Christmas. You know, World Vision Catalog, it's, a, it's an organization, I won't get into it, but go Google World Vision. There's ways that your family can contribute to the needs of others. And it's not only a powerful way that you can serve others, but it will bless you. It will do something in you when you do that. I, I just challenge you to take the blinders off and to see the needs around you and to care, to allow yourself to feel. But more than that, beyond that, I also challenge you to take off the blinders and open up your eyes to the incredible goodness of God that is being worked out all around you, that is present right under your nose. I'm gonna challenge you to behold his goodness and to give thanks. Amen. Today, as we close our service, we have an opportunity to behold something pretty incredible, and that is um, to behold, to receive God himself, to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ for our redemption, for our healing. And yet I think so often, if we're usual, if this is the usual thing that we do, we can come to communion and we don't have to think much about it. We can get pretty apathetic about it. We just come up and we do it and we go and sit down and, and we aren't expecting, we aren't believing, we aren't imagining that, that God through the sacred encounter could do something in us. That he could heal us in body or soul that he could free us from some sort of torment in our life that, that he's coming near us and he's reminding us that, that we're his and that he loves us and that we're not forsaken, that we're not alone. See, I think in worship as a whole, it's easy to become apathetic just to expect that this is what you do. And in fact, there was a prophet who spoke about that and, uh, and Jesus then picked up these words from the prophet. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human traditions. And I think that could apply to all of us, that our worship becomes empty and we just, we don't expect much. We're not open for much. And today I wanna challenge you to to see this differently, to confess that attitude. So will you stand with me as we pray this prayer of confession? Pray with me. Lord, hear my prayer and honor my confession. The danger always exists that I worship for worship's sake and I pray because it's what I've been taught to do. With the psalmist David, I pray, restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Amen. Hey, if your salvation is no longer a cause of joy for you, if what God has done this time of year is is something that, that doesn't bring you joy, doesn't fill you with awe and wonder, just confess that right now before your father. If there's anything else that troubles your heart, speak that out to God right now in a moment of quiet confession. that scripture makes for those of us who confess. It says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God has done it. 
in our midst. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so that night when Jesus was betrayed, he was in that upper room, that guest room of of that house, celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, and it's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance 